John chapter number two, as we are turning there, John chapter number two, I'm going to begin in verse number one. We are in week two of our new series, He Amazes Me. John chapter two, verse number one says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Now there was set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out good wine and when the guests have well drunk, uh, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs did Jesus do in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Today, week two of our series, He Amazes Me, I want to talk to you about the first miracle sign of Jesus, and I'm calling this message, The Amazing Wedding of Cana. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your ministry of the Holy Spirit right now that will touch each heart and each life. We give you all the praise, and everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the text, we are told that this was the beginning or the first sign that Jesus did. To be sure, there were many signs thereafter. Matter of fact, in the Gospels, there are 37 signs specifically mentioned that Jesus did, not counting his his birth, his ascension, and his resurrection. So 40 miracles all in total. And the Apostle John tells us in the book that we are looking at, John chapter 21, verse 25, and there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose, Suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And when it said many things that Jesus did, if you look into the original language, it's actually referring to miracles, signs, and wonders. And so when we come to this particular text that is the beginning of miracles, we need to understand that Jesus was a miracle-working machine. He was and he is a miracle working machine. And I don't want you to overlook that. And that's my first point. Don't overlook our miracle working God. In Mark chapter number one, we find him drive an evil spirit out of a man. In Mark eight, uh, Matthew eight and two other gospels, we find him healing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And then he heals many who were sick and oppressed in the evening time. In Luke five, we find the first miracle catch a fish. In Matthew eight and two other gospels, He cleanses a man with leprosy. Also in Matthew 8, he heals a centurion's paralyzed servant. In Matthew 9 and two 
the Gospels, he heals a paralytic who is let down to the roof by his four friends. In Matthew 12 and two other Gospels, he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. In Luke 7, he raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. In Matthew 8 and two other Gospels, he calms a storm. In Matthew 8 again, he casts demons, possessing a man to a herd of pigs. In Matthew chapter 9 and two other Gospels, he heals the woman with the issue of blood and then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Matthew 9, he heals two blind men. In Matthew 14 and another Gospel, he heals many sick that touched his garment. In Matthew 15 and Mark 7, he heals the Seraphitian woman's demon-possessed daughter. In Mark 7, he heals a man who is deaf and dumb. In Matthew 15 and another Gospel, he heals or he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. In Mark 8, he heals a blind man from Bethsaida. In Matthew 17 and two other Gospels, he heals a man with an un, uh, a boy with an unclean spirit. In Matthew 17, he pays the temple tax with a coin in a fish's mouth. In Matthew 12 and Luke 11, he heals a blind, de- mute demoniac. In Luke 13, he heals a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. In Luke 14, he heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath. In Luke 17, he cleanses 10 lepers. In Mark 10 and Luke 18, he restores blind Bartimaeus' sight. In Matthew 21 and Mark 11, he commands a fig tree to wither up and die. And in Luke 22, he heals Malchus's ear who was arresting him. Those are only 30 of the signs. The other seven are reserved for exclusively in the book of John and three others mentioned in the book of John. In John 4, he healed the nobleman's son. In John 5, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda who was paralyzed 38 years. In John 6, he feeds 5,000 families with a little boy's lunch, five crackers and two small sardines. In John 9, he walks on water. In John 11, he heals a man born blind and raises Jairus from the dead. And our subject today, the wedding feast, the amazing wedding feast at Cana, where he turns water into wine. 40 miracles if you count his birth his resurrection and his ascension, three and a half years, he does 39 of them. That's almost one a month. And that doesn't even account for the mass healings that Jesus did when they brought many to him and he healed them all. It doesn't even account for all the things that John said. If he wrote them all down, the worlds would not be able to contain the books thereof. What am I trying to tell you? Jesus was and is a miracle-working machine. And sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we settle in our faith for an ordinary God. And I took the time out this morning to name every one of them because I wanted to stretch your faith out of the malaise of accepting just a regular Savior and help you to remember you serve an extraordinary Savior. I wanted to give you a faith lift this morning, get you out of that place of doubt, into that place of faith where you remember he is an amazing Jesus and if you allow him to he will amaze you in your life but so many times we forget so many times we just think well you know the only reason why Jesus is here is so you know I can go to heaven we need to realize what a great amazing miracle working savior that we have and as we come to our text there are four things that I believe will inspire you to see him as a wonder-working God. Number one, he cares. Number two, he nudges. Number three, he instructs. And number four, he deepens. Let's begin with the first one, he cares. Now, to understand this truth, 
that is screaming out from this amazing wedding at Cana, we need to go back to why the gospel of John was written. What is John's point of view? And to understand John's point of view and how it is unique from the other gospels, we have to understand why the other gospels were written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written for the purpose of tying Jesus back to the patriarchs, specifically Abraham and David, or to the prophets. In other words, they they want everybody to know that this is the promised Messiah based on lineage and prophecy. And so when you read through those gospels, for instance, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Luke begins with the fulfillment of a prophetic promise. And so does Mark with another prophetic promise that John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. And these are all attempts to tie Jesus back in the mind of the Jewish reader to either the patriarchs or to the prophecies so that that they will understand that this was the promised Messiah. And each of them has their own mastery in and of themselves. But I specifically love Matthew's genealogy because when you read through Matthew's genealogy, you find out that there's all sorts of people in his genealogy. You have Rahab, who was a prostitute in his genealogy. She was the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And then you have Tamar. Tamar, who who dressed up like a prostitute, showed an old man a little leg to trick him into sleeping with her. And they had two twins. And you remember who the twins was, Zerah and Perez. And from these two twins, Zerah and Perez, came Obed through Boaz and Ruth, who Ruth, who was originally a worshiper of a pagan god. And from Obed came Jesse, who was the father of David, and therefore necessitated or the necessary link to David of Jesus, which is what Matthew was after. And what I love about Matthew's genealogy is it mentions all of these things to let us know that we have a Savior who can reach this way and reach that way. He can reach to those who are up and doing well, and he can reach to those who are down and doing not so well. He reaches to the highest mountain, and he extends to the lowest valley. I love the way Matthew talks about the genealogy, because he's letting us know that everybody is Welcome into the family of Jesus. And so Matthew has a mastery in and of itself. But when we come to John, we find something unique. We find that John doesn't take Jesus back to just the, the, the patriarchs and the prophets. John takes Jesus way, 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 way back. John takes Jesus back to the beginning of all things. And so he opens his book, his gospel, John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. And the light shined in darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. That all through him might believe. He was not that light. But he was sent to bear witness of that light. 
that light was the true light which giveth light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him but as many as received him to them he gave power or the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten full of grace and truth and so what John does which is so much different than the other writers is he says I don't want to tie him back to the prophets I don't want to necessarily tie him back to the patriarchs even though he is in the lineage of David and qualifies to be the Messiah even though he did fulfill all 400 prophecies I want you to understand that this man didn't come from David and Abraham but the person that I'm talking about preceded David and Abraham he was there in the beginning he's the one that spoke the worlds into existence he's the one that flung the stars into space he's the one that commanded the sun moon and stars to stay in their place told the seas to stay in their borders this is God the creator of all things this is the source of life this is the individual who breathed breath into the very dirt that he created from the ground and made you and I. John is telling us, I want to take it way back. He's just not a tie to the patriarchs. He's not just a tie to the prophets. This is the providential one. This is God manifest in the flesh. John takes it way back. And the reason why John takes it way back is so that we would grasp when it comes to the first miracle how much he cares because John has this holy, mighty, majestic creator of all things, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end God in his first miracle at a wedding. He goes, John has him going from creating the sun, moon, and stars to doing the funky chicken dance. Literally, he has Jesus and his disciples there and he has Jesus and Jesus being bothered not by a life or death matter. Not by a sickness or disease matter. Not by a, I, I need food and, and my, my finances are about to run out type of matter. John has Jesus bothered, Jesus being, being brought to Jesus' attention that they ran out of wine. Such a trivial issue for such a grand God. Such a, such a small detail for such a big God. But what's amazing about this is John is wanting us to see something here by juxtaposing the greatness of God with the fact that he is at a wedding dealing with a trivial matter that to us was trivial, but to the bride and groom in Bible times, it was embarrassing. And so Jesus does his first miracle not to show off, but to help a bride and a groom save face. And this is absolutely extraordinary and ought to amaze you and I that this big, grand, huge God that created the whole thing cares enough about what seems to be the trivial things of life. And that's why when we come to First Peter chapter number 5 and verse number 7, the Bible says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And what he means by that is it doesn't matter whether it is a small thing or a big thing. It doesn't matter whether it is a hangnail or the healing of cancer. Our God is so caring that he cares about not just 
the big things, but the little things in our life. The things that seem to be insignificant. And Matthew 10 tells us this when it says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And are not, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. And the fact that he cares is emphasized by what he does his first miracle with. Water. Water. Water has no caloric value. It's flavorless. It is the universal solvent. It's transparent. It is so underappreciated that we swim in it. The raw material for the first miracle is the most basic building block in nature. But from that little thing, Jesus makes wine so that we would be amazed at how much he cares. Furthermore, we should not just be amazed that the creator is at a wedding and that the creator has done his first miracle with something so insignificantly overlooked as water, but it seems to me like he breaks the rules in order to bless this couple. Did you see it with me? I mean, it seems like Mary comes to Jesus and presents the problem and says that they got no wine. And it seems like Jesus at first says no. I mean, it looks like no to me. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That, that seems like a no to me, right? And, but what, but what it also seems like is that God's got a schedule. My hour has not yet come. There's a lot of people that think that this world is just, you know, running, you know, uh, out of order chaotically and that there is no plan for it and it's just progressing to worse and worse. But I want you to know that God has a schedule, that there is a prophetic schedule, that there is coming a time where he is going to split the eastern skies and come back for a church without spot or without wrinkle and he is going to make war on the enemy or the antichrist and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. God God has a schedule. But what I love about this is it seems like even though this quote unquote wasn't on God's schedule, it wasn't on his time frame, that he seemed to be willing to break the rules in order to bless a couple with something that was so insignificant and trivial against the grand scheme of God's schedule. Maybe you don't know this, but I want to talk to the people who God has broken the rules to bless every now and again. You didn't sow for it. You didn't believe for it. You didn't plan for it. You didn't pray for it. But God did it anyway. And if the truth be told, you actually doubted in the process. But God showed up anyway. God loves to break the rules in order to bless us. And this is an exclamation point in the text. How much he loves us. How much he cares. What I love about this is that Jesus talks about this, this wine. And I have to mention this because unfortunately in the body of Christ, we look for scriptural proof to live on holy lives. And so there is a segment of the population in the body of Christ that would read this text And what they would come away with is the low-level truth that we could drink as much as we want. It's amazing to me how we will search scriptures to be disobedient. But we will never search the scripture to find truth and receive a promise or to find truth for correction for our life. But we will search it hard and use it as justification for doing everything that we know is inappropriate as children of God. 
Jesus was talking about the wine. Jesus did this first miracle of turning water into wine because Jesus wanted them to know that he's got a wine for them that is better than any wine that you can get. In and the new wine in the scripture is specifically a reference to the Holy Ghost that is on the inside of you. And when you get filled with the Holy Ghost, you lose your taste for the things of the world. Some of you need a refilling because you're too thirsty for the things of this world. And so this first truth is that he, he cares. And when you know that he cares like that, how John sets it up is absolutely masterful. You're blown away. You're amazed. God, you would, you would care about that. Bring everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. All because we do not bring everything to God in prayer. But the second truth that will cause you to amaze him is the fact that he nudges. Back to the story. Mary tells him they ran out of wine. Jesus says, it ain't my time. Mary seems like she just ignores Jesus. And she goes and speaks right to the servants. And when she goes and she speaks right to the servants, it almost seems as though Mary in this whole process, in this whole conversation, is nudging Jesus to do something. And what I love about this is there is a theological reason for that, by the way, that Mary is having to nudge Jesus because Jesus understands that once he begins the miracles, the clock starts ticking. There's, there's no turning back. The, the first miracle was a trigger to the clock being tick, starting to tick toward Calvary. And so Jesus here is, 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 is concerned. Do, do I push the go on the clock at this particular point? And what makes that even more amazing to me is that even though it wasn't technically supposed to be the beginning of the clock toward Calvary, Jesus broke the rules and started the clock ticking for a trivial thing like giving wine to a couple at their wedding. If he would do that for them, is there not anything that he won't do for you and I? And the good news is he doesn't have to be nudged anymore because he already paid the price on the cross. Calvary has already happened and therefore all of the promises of God are yes and amen. It seems like she's she's nudging him. And, and when you realize this uh, you realize that up to this point, Jesus has been the best kept secret in humanity. He has lived 30 years and, and, and nobody has saw him do a miracle yet. What restraint? I mean, think about that. He knew. I even think Mary knew. Maybe in my mind's eye, maybe they got a little glimpse here and there. Maybe on, on the side, he did to, to one of his childhood friends, shh, don't tell nobody, but I'm going to heal you of that particular thing right there. Maybe as he was in Joseph's carpenter's shop, with his mind, he whittled some wood, and they were amazed. How did that all, I didn't see you use any tools on that. And they got a little glimpse when he was 12, when he missed the bus back to Nazareth from Jerusalem, when they were celebrating the Passover, and his family said, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Have you ever left your kids at a store and not know that you left without your kids? That's what happened to Mary and, and, and Joseph. And they ran back, and they found him in the temple, and he was teaching. And he was confounding at 12. Everything that he was saying was confounding the wise and they got a glimpse they knew they knew they knew but for 30 years he was incognito for 30 years he did nothing but this was his coming out party all because he got a nudge 
from Mary. Miracles, by the way, often take nudges in our lives. Most miracles take a nudge, don't they? When when God has to nudge us out of our assumptions, our complacencies, our fears, our failures, and, and sometimes he even uses other people to nudge us. Matter of fact, many of the miracles in the Bible had a supporting cast. When Jesus healed the two blind men and the ten lepers, they had a buddy system. When he healed the paralyzed man who was let down to the roof, it took his four friends to get him to that miracle. To feed the 5,000 men plus women and children, he needed a little boy's lunch. To heal Jairus' daughter, it took an interruption from a woman who had an issue of blood for 38 years to build his faith. Many times there is a nudge that is needed. And here's what God told me to tell you, that when the Holy Spirit nudges you on the inside, it's not for nothing. He doesn't just nudge you to annoy you. It's amazing how a lot of people see the voice of the Holy Spirit as an annoyance. Because most of the time, the only reason, the only way they hear the voice of the Holy Spirit is when they're about to do something that's wrong. And they think, there goes that voice again. Yeah, yeah, there goes that voice. So like Charlie Brown's mother, you know, that's not the Holy Ghost. He doesn't just nudge you to annoy you. He nudges you so he can do something for you. He nudges you because God wants to amaze you. And it is amazing how if you will just follow the leading and the voice of the Holy Spirit, how you will be amazed. And sometimes God nudges you so that he can do something through you. Have you ever heard the story about Duck Dynasty? They're not so popular anymore, but there was a, a minute there. They were on TV all the time. You know, the guys that look like hillbillies with all of the, you know, long beards and everything like that. And every time I would watch that, I would say, why don't you shave that beard? You know, you, you ugly with that beard. I mean, it's just ratty and nasty and every, everything else. But they, 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 the way it started, they were, they were commercial fishermen first. And the oldest Phil, he knew God had something better for him. And, and, and suddenly he was on a hunting trip with with one of his friends, and this herd of mallards kind of just flew over, this flock of mallards flew over, and, and he made this duck call, and his friend looked at him and said, you didn't call those ducks, you commanded those ducks. And something was birthed on the inside of him. There was this little nudge when he heard that, but it took another friend who he went to church with, who looked at him and he said, you know what? He said, everybody's always coming up to you and asking you questions about, about ducks and duck calls and things like that. He said, I'll use all of my collateral in order to get you a loan to start a company so that you can make these duck calls. And that's how Duck Dynasty began. It began with a nudge. There are nudges that God will put into your life so that God can do something through you. But there are also nudges that God will put into your life so God can do something for you. I've had so many of these over the years. The one that came to my mind as I was I was just putting this together was was when I woke up one morning and I felt this this impression on the inside of me so strong. Your your son's going to die. And, and, and I heard the Holy Spirit said, drop to your knees right now and pray, and he won't. So I, I dropped to my knees and I started to pray. And I just prayed a real quick prayer. It wasn't an extensive prayer. I prayed Psalm 91 over him. And then I got up and I looked out of a bedroom window where I could see the garage and the driveway. And it was my son early in the morning. He got on his go-kart and he headed out right for the access road. And here comes my mother-in-law and father-in-law in their minivan sitting up high and they can't see him. And I'm just watching this whole thing in slow motion. But at the 11th, or the, 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 the midnight hour, as they say, they hit the brakes and Joey whizzed by, not even knowing that anything had been that close. But I know, 
I know. God said, watch this, watch this. Here's what that nudge that you just obeyed, here's what that nudge saved you from. The nudges of the Holy Spirit just doing something for you, right? I remember other times. I was coming out of Wednesday night in old church one time, and I felt this nudge on the inside of you. Your wife and your daughter are going to die. And so I prayed. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a storm you couldn't see right before your eyes. And so I prayed, and, and they were in a separate car, so they were before me. And I kept going. I was driving faster and faster to see them. And all of a sudden, I see them stopped in the middle of the road, and they can't pass. Why? There was a big tree that had fell down in the middle of the road. I don't know when that tree fell. I don't know if they saw that tree. But here's what I do know. I do know that God stopped whatever was supposed to happen because there was a nudge on the inside. Obey the nudge of the Holy Spirit. I remember when my daughter, my wife was pregnant with my daughter. They told her she wasn't growing right. Got to deliver her early. Of course, every woman wants the baby to come early. What woman is there doesn't want the baby to come early, right? Nobody wants to wait. It's like it hurts. I'm getting you. All this kind of stuff. And we went into the hospital, blah, 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 blah. And my wife would say to me, can you just please pray that the baby comes now? I said, I can't pray that. Can't pray that. I pray that the baby comes when the baby is supposed to come. Why? Because there was a nudge on the inside of me when the doctors told me that. I said, the doctors misdiagnosed the dates. After they tried and tried and tried, they came back, they told, we misdiagnosed the dates. And from that point on, she's listened to me every single day of her life. Now I'm just praying. (laughs) The nudge of the Holy Spirit. The nudge. When God asked me to give up my career as a CPA attorney to go into the ministry, it felt weird. It didn't feel right. It felt like I was giving up too much, but I obeyed that nudge, and here we are, 51 years later, right, because I've been pastoring ever since I was, you know, 77. (laughs) The nudge of the Holy Spirit. I heard a testimony of this guy's name is Lee Strobel. He said he he, he felt this real. He was an atheist. He got converted, and his boss that he was working for was an atheist, and he felt this nudge to go into his office, the boss's office, and invite him to church and tell tell him about Jesus. And he went in there, and he, and he invited his boss to church. It was Easter services that week, and trying to tell him about Jesus, and the boss wasn't having any of it. I mean, he was making fun of him. He was pushing back and everything like that, but he felt this nudge, and so he told him, and he, he left, and he said, Lord, I don't understand why, why I didn't receive that. That Sunday, he expected God to have changed the guy's heart and to see him in church, and sure enough, the guy didn't show up, and four years went by, and he had this nudge on the inside of him that he always knew, I heard you, God, but how come nothing happened? Four years go by. I think he was a pastor by this time. In walks this guy into his church. And he said, I've been waiting four years to tell you this. He said, I don't know if you know it. He said, but that day when you walked into your boss's office, who was an atheist and told him about Jesus and invited him to come to church, and he was pushing back real hard. He said, I was a worker in the office that day, and I heard everything that you said. And from that moment forward, I said, I want this, Jesus. I went to church that Easter Sunday, gave my life to the Lord with my entire family. We've been serving the Lord ever since, and I've been waiting four years to tell you the nudge of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you see instantaneous results when you get nuts. Sometimes you don't. I remember one, one time years ago, I was walking out of the grocery store. I just bought a bag of groceries. And I heard the Holy Spirit said, leave it on the median. I said to the Holy Ghost, I said, I just bought these groceries. That's a $100 bag of groceries, that, that real good groceries right in there. Why do you want me to just leave it on the median? And I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, somebody's going to need that bag of groceries. And so I just left it. I was looking around for a little while thinking I'm going to watch this person come grab. Nobody came. I just left. Holy Spirit said, leave the bag of groceries right there. I left it there. I still don't know why I left that bag of groceries. 
But someday when I get to heaven, I'm looking forward to the person that I met that needed that bag of groceries because I know I felt the nudge. And can I tell you something? Even when you don't see the result of the nudge, but you obey the voice of the nudge, obeying those little things are why you'll hear those important things that'll save the life of your children, of your family, of whatever it may be, because you obey the nudge. And so here we have Mary. She's nudging them. Nudge, come on, come on, come on. They, They need your help. I don't know exactly why other than what I told you about the countdown but that nudge set off the ministry of Jesus but then notice the third thing that'll cause you to be amazed by him as he instructs us I love what Mary says after Jesus said well what does this have to do with me she ignores Jesus and she goes to the servant she said whatever he says do it this is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible this this is this is this is Theology class 101. You want to know how to walk in everything that God has for you? Whatever he says, do it. So simple, isn't it? Whatever he says, do it. Whatever. Problem is, God will say some stuff to you sometimes. Don't make no sense to your head. God will say some stuff to you sometimes. It's just your flesh is like, ah, oh, there ain't no way that I'm doing that. I remember one time, and he's coming here in a few weeks. Jesse Duplantis was telling me he was in a, he was in a service one time. They were taking up an offering, and he heard the Holy Spirit say to him, give 10,000. And he was like, uh-uh, I ain't no 10,000. And all of a sudden, the guy next to him said, hey, Jess, I don't know, but I just think I heard the Holy Spirit say, give me $10,000. And Jesse said, Shh, I thought he was talking to me. <laughs> Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say things to you that will not make sense to your mind. Matter of fact, that's what it's all about, right? Our job is to trust. God's job is to save. God's job is to deliver. God's job is to do. God's job is to do. Right, we have one job assignment. Trust. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Trust what he says. March around these city walls for seven, de- seven days. Each day one day. On the seventh day, do it seven times. On the seventh time around, on the seventh day, give a shout, I'll bring the walls down. Huh? Say what? Take your rod, stretch it over this Red Sea, I'll part those Red Seas. Take your last bit of oil and your last bit of meal that you're going to make for you and your starving child before you die. And instead of eating for yourself, give it to the prophet of God. I'll make sure that the oil and the meal doesn't waste until the famine is over. Stuff that doesn't make sense. Go fishing, Peter, because we need to pay our taxes. The first fish that you pull out of the lake, there'll be a coin in its mouth. Pay your taxes and pay my taxes. Huh? What you mean? Bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there might be meat in my house. And prove me now here with, saith the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open up the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing that there won't be room enough to receive. I ain't doing that. Whatever he says. Whatever he says. Do it. Do it. Why? Because he is instructing you for a purpose. He's not instructing you to hurt you. He's not instructing you to bother you. He's not instructing you to rain on your parade. He's instructing you because he wants to amaze you with the results. Notice he even tells us the promise in that last verse that I quoted. And I will open up the windows of heaven. See, some of y'all don't believe that. Because if you believed it, you'd do it. Whatever he says, do it. 
But here's what happens. Sometimes God will only, not only tell you stuff that don't make sense, that your flesh doesn't want to do, or that you feel like you can't do for some reason or another. By the way, I found out something. Anything God ever asks us to do, we can do. Anytime God ever asks us to do something, we can do it. Sometimes we feel like we can't. But then God will really push the limit sometimes, and God will sometimes ask you to risk your reputation for an instruction. Notice what Jesus tells the servants first. He says, go fill the water pots. Okay. Seems silly to me. Here you go. Take out hose. I don't know if they had hoses in those days. Fill a water pot. <laughs> Jesus, there you go. Six fill. But then Jesus says something else. He says, draw it out and go take it to the master of the ceremony. Huh? No, no, no. This was your idea right here. I put water in there. Are you... You want me to take it to him right now? And if I take it to him, and he's going to be like, why are you giving me a glass of water? i got to go get my own water from the hose. You know, now you want me to risk my risk. Sometimes what God will do to see if you really trust, to, if you're really willing to do whatever he says, is he'll ask you to put your reputation on the line. By the way, you know that? A lot of times that's when miracles happen. When you put your reputation on, I remember another time, I think I've told you all this one time. I was passing a construction site one day. And, and, and I heard the Holy Ghost say, just go over there and ask if there's a, a man there who's got a little girl who's dying of cancer. I ain't doing that. What you want me to do is just walk on the construction site. Like, how do I get everybody's attention? Like, I ain't got a megaphone, nothing like that. And if I did have a megaphone, I ain't doing that anyway. I ain't standing in the middle of the construction. Hey, is there anybody here as a little girl who's dying of cancer? I drove off. Holy Spirit said, I said, do it. I went back. Closed the door of the car. I seen a guy. I said, uh, is there anybody here who's got a little girl dying of cancer? He said, hold on, let me ask. Hey, is there anybody here? Now I'm looking like a fool. And check it out. And nobody came. And nobody came. Now, I believe there was somebody there. You know how many times in service I'll say something? We have outpourings. It's not until everybody leaves that somebody will come up to me and say, I I just don't want to come down in front of everybody. But here's what God was doing. God was testing whether I was willing to do whatever he said. Whatever he says, do it. Sometimes the obedience, you might even miss it sometimes, but that's okay. What is important is that you are obedient to what you felt the Lord was asking you to do because God is training your spirit so that way he can amaze you in your life. The last thing I want to share with you today is... The fourth thing that he does, he deepens our understanding of who he is. The raw material for the first miracle is the most basic building block in nature, water. It's all around us. It covers 71% of the planet. It composes 65% of our bodies, and yet we take it for granted. It is overlooked and underappreciated by most of us most of the time. But it is a profound reminder meant to deepen our understanding of who he is. How so? Because God wants us to know it doesn't take much for him to do something big. God can work with just a little. A little boy had a lunch, five crackers, two small barley loaves. You know, he told the disciples, we're going to feed everything with with that little boy's lunch. And the disciples looked at Jesus and said, what are they among so many? 
How many of you know if you just give Jesus a little bit, Jesus can take a little bit of oil and a little bit of meal and turn it into something that will last a whole famine long, three years. He can take a mustard seed and cause a mountain to be cast into the sea. He can take two mites from a widow woman and turn it into a testimony. He can take a staff and he can part the Red Sea. He can use 12 men to turn the world upside down. He can use the jawbone of a donkey to destroy thousands of the enemies of God. He can work with a stone, one stone, and take down a giant. He can work with a cloud the size of a man's hand and send a torrential rain on the earth. And he can take water and turn it into wine. What's he trying to do? Trying to get us to know him. Every miracle God does is not just for the miracle. So that way we could know him in a deeper way. But he also started with water, letting us know there's nothing he can't do. He is letting us know he can manipulate the molecules that make up matter in this world that he created. And not just water molecules, but cancer molecules and brain cells and blood cells. Physicians have said, or physicists have said, there are four fundamental forces in this world. Gravitational, electromagnetic, strong nuclear and weak nuclear. But they have postulated that there is a fifth force that holds them all together. But they can't define it. They can't, they can't say what it is, but, but they know that there's something else. There's a, there's a fifth force. There's an unseen force holding all that together. They may not know who it is, but can I tell you who it is? It's the one who upholds all things by the power of his word. It's the one who can manipulate the molecules of this universe because he created them. He wants us to know there's nothing that he cannot do. I like the fact that John, who was trying to link Jesus back to the creation, remember what the Bible says happened? Very first chapter of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Watch this. And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. It started with water. John said, let me take you back. Let me take you back beyond the patriarchs. Let me take you back beyond the prophets. Let me take you back to the one who created the water. And so he used the very first miracle to say, this is he. John is trying to let us know that every time Jesus does a miracle, he's deepening our understanding of who he is. And the last thing about the first miracle is that it foreshadows the last At the amazing wedding of Cana, God turned water into wine. And that miracle, as that miracle took place, it was being poured out. At the Last Supper, Jesus raised a cup of wine. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. On the eve of the crucifixion, he turned an ordinary cup of wine into a bottomless glass of grace and transformed the fruit of the vine into an agent of forgiveness for every sin ever committed. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He transformed water into wine as a foreshadow of the transformation that takes place when the blood is applied to our life. 
Christ. We go from sinner to saint, from alienated from God to the righteousness of God, all because of his blood, which is the only solvent that can bleach the crimson stain of sin. The first miracle foreshadows the last. And I love the detail of God. Have you ever just got involved in the detail of God? That's like when I, when I hear, well, I'm not very detailed. You are because you're like your heavenly father. He's so detailed. Did you notice how many water pots there were? How many? How many? See, y'all don't pay attention good like you should. And you ought to know that, not just because I told you. You ought to know that because you're already ready for yourself. Six water pots. What is six? It's the number of man. On the sixth day, he created who? Not a trick question. Man. How many gallons of, wa- of water did each water pot hold? The Bible said 20 to 30. I like 30 because it's bigger. And also because it makes my point. What is six, the number of man, times 30? What is it? Come on. Six times 30 is? 180. Why did the first miracle come out to 180? Because God wants us to know that when the blood of Jesus touches your life, you don't do it 360. Because that means you just come right back to the same place you used to be. When the blood of Jesus touches your life, guess what you do? You do a 180 and you walk in the complete opposite direction of who you used to be. You are not the same person that you used to be. You have been bought with a price. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. God wants us to know that when the blood touches our lives, he picks us up, turns us around, puts our feet on solid ground. The first miracle is a foreshadow of the last. Would you stand to your feet? He is a miracle work in Jesus. Can you say Amen. He is a miracle working Jesus. As I begin to study this, I mean, faith just started to arise in my heart for all sorts of things. It's amazing the things that we tolerate in life instead of the things that we believe for in life, all because we have forgotten that he's an amazing Jesus, that he was a miracle working machine. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are here today, and we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. Father, that you care so much about us from the little things to the big things. And Father, that you shed your blood so that we can experience the greatest miracle that there is, and that is freedom and forgiveness of sin. Father, today as every head bowed and every eye is closed, I ask that you minister to the hearts of anybody that is far from you. Anybody that is here today that doesn't know that they know that they know that they are right with you, that their sins are forgiven, and that if they were to leave earth today, that heaven would be their eternal home. Father, today, would you minister by your grace to each one of these people? No one looking around. If you're here today, say, Pastor, today I don't know if I'm right with Jesus, but today I want to be made right with him. We won't embarrass you, I promise, but if that's you, if God is speaking to you, surrender your life to him. How do I do that? Put your hand up to heaven right now if that's you, Pastor, today. I want to give my life to Jesus. I don't know if I'm right with him, but today I want to surrender everything that I am to him. Maybe you're at home right now and maybe God is ministering to you. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're watching on television. Maybe you're watching through our podcast, whatever, wherever you're watching from. If God is speaking to you, just put your hands up to heaven right now. 
I want us all to pray right now for the benefit of whoever is giving their life to Jesus right now. Thank God that the word of God can go from here to all sorts of places that we never know. Let's all say this out loud together. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I ask Jesus to be my personal Savior. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, welcome to the family of God. An usher will find you, I'm sure, and minister to you and help you in your relationship with the Lord.